the giant Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. G'day Giants, you are listening to episode number 36. As I'm recording this, I'm about one third through on my two month USA speaking tour. So far I've covered Las Vegas, LA, San Fran, Jacksonville, Orlando, and even a side trip to Mexico. I still have New York, South Carolina, Kansas, West Michigan and Seattle to visit, all part of launching my second book, How to Get a Mentor as a Designer Guaranteed. The full list of my tour can be seen on gettingamentor.com. Click the events page and if I'm visiting your city or am nearby, please come along. I'd really love to see you there. I'm also doing my best to document my day-to-day journey via Snapchat and Instagram stories. So if you'd like a sneak peek into my travels, you can add me on my handle, The Giant Thinker. Now, to introduce today's guest, he is the Managing Director of Landor Australia. He's had over 20 years experience in marketing, branding, and communications. He started his career in advertising with Clemenger BBDO, then McCann Erickson, where his clients included Unilever, Black & Decker, and Bacardi. He's also held leadership positions at Blue Marlin and Interbrand. Some of the topics we spoke about include advice on becoming a great leader, tips on managing staff, how to better commercialize innovative ideas, and how brands can be more agile. Now, before we dive into it, I want you to picture racing against the clock to wrap up two projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. It's challenging, but I truly believe that the rewards are worth it. We all know that the growth and speed of the internet has created endless opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, I'm excited to let you know that FreshBooks has recently announced the launch of an all-new and improved version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. When it comes to the invoicing and accounting side of things, I found it the simplest way to be more productive and the most efficient way to get paid quickly. FreshBooks is packed full of features, including the ability to create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster, and view when your client has seen your invoice to put an end to the guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to all you giant thinkers listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com giant and enter giant thinkers in the how did you hear about us section. Alrighty, it's time to strap yourself in. I present to you the highly proficient and modest Dominic Walsh. Dominic Walsh, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast, mate. How are you? Very well, right? Very well. Looking forward to having a chat. I'm so glad that uh, you were able to make the time. I'm grateful uh, for you to be on this show uh, for so many reasons. Um, And uh, first off, I have a little icebreaker question for you. And it is, if you had to choose uh, between attending school at Hogwarts or living in Narnia, what would you pick? I'd definitely be a Hogwarts man, I think. Um, 
read all the books when I was younger and I think I always think of the Dementors in Harry Potter. That's one of my uh, favourite concepts, just the idea of people who suck all your time, which seems to be <laughs> uh, <laughs> a problem in my job sometimes. So. Yeah, I, I can kind of agree. I think Hogwarts um, would definitely be uh, just just a, a tad bit cooler yeah. um, for, for for reasons as well. Like it's it's not really, I can't believe it's a kid's book. It, it's sort of everyone's really, isn't it? It's quite dark. Yeah. Um, some moments are quite dark anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where would you say your expertise lies? Um, it's interesting actually because um, when I started out in my career, I was uh, quite interested in the creative side of things. So I did award school and um, I, I actually studied commerce, but I was to do something creative. So, um, so I've sort of landed in the perfect place in a way. My first job out of uni was at Clemenger uh, BBDO and running the, um, the Forex beer account. And um, it was a really nice balance for me because it was you know, somewhere between the nexus between business and creativity. So I think that's sort of where my comfort zone is, just in that area where I can be commercial, uh, but in a creative business. And um, I think that's sort of a, a happy harmony for me where I can have the best of both worlds. Yeah, where business meets creativity. I like that. Exactly. I think that's that's certainly something that is going to resonate with most people where, uh, where we are formally trained in our craft, whether it's uh, graphic design, digital design, UX, or um, fashion, industrial product design, all of those things. But it's the business module that I think um, is always uh, a little bit more lacking, but it, it should very much be equal to the learnings that we yeah yeah that we should go through. Some of the best creative people I've met, or really successful creative people, I think are incredibly good business people as well. I think you you look at photographers, for instance, a lot of them are really running their own business, and you know it's how they promote themselves, how they generate clients. Um, so I think that commercial aspect of creativity is really important and. I think, you know, quite often the people who can get that balance right go a lot further. Yeah, agreed. So let's rewind the clock a bit. Uh, tell us about your childhood and how you grew up. Uh, I was a bit of a wild child. Uh, <clears throat> had a mother who was an early childhood teacher, so she was very much into letting us, you know, do what we want. So a fairly laissez-faire childhood, I guess you could say. And father, who was an architect, so he was quite creative in, in his view of the world as well. Um, so they were sort of very much 70s era parents, I guess. So uh, a lot of uh, free time and free rope and a lot less technology back in those days as well. So um, I look back at it as quite fondly, actually, as a, as a great childhood and, um, and a great opportunity to be, you know, creative as a kid, I guess. Yeah. And what, uh, whereabouts uh, did you spend most of your time uh, in your primary and elementary school years and then, then your high school? So I grew up in Brisbane and um, actually first you know, had my whole childhood there, university there. First job was, um, as I mentioned earlier, running the Forex account, which was a, a great gig if you were living in Queensland at the time. And um, from there took off and went to London and then Sydney and uh, sort of been all over the place since then. So so it's been, you know, 20 years since I was there or over 20 years actually, but, um, but a fantastic childhood. And it's interesting, you know, you see all these people who or I come across them every now and then people I, who sort of, I grew up with in, in that part of the world who had a similar childhood to me and it's amazing where they land. Um, so, you know, 
anyway, Bernard Fanning from Powderfinger was one of the guys I went to school with and he, quite, a, quite a few creative people actually who ended up doing really interesting things. So, um, so it's, it's interesting to see where they turn up. So with where you uh, got to um, from, from living in Brisbane, as you said, you've traveled all over and, and experienced uh, life in London as well, uh, working there. Was there a moment in your career where you had received a heartbreaking critique or, you know, a moment where you were given tough love and how did you respond to that? Uh, lots of little moments. I, I think there wasn't, it's not one that strikes me as this compelling moment, but um, thinking back, I think, you know, even when I was started out of my career running the Forex account, I think um, I remember there was one competitive analysis I did. I was an account account manager running that bit of business and I went off and thought I was being really proactive and did this whole analysis of the market and put it on my boss's desk and when I asked him what he thought, he sort of sort of raised his eyebrows and said, oh, yeah, yeah, that. Hmm. And um, so it wasn't so much what he did say, it was what he didn't say in terms of, you know, I'd put in all of this effort and I think he was, he was looking at it thinking, I don't know what planet you're on. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, that was probably one of the first experiences of thinking you, you know and you don't and then, you know, realising you've got to be quite resilient in the sense that, you know, you will fail and you, you need to understand that, you know, what, what you think is right at that early stage in your career isn't necessarily right, um, but it's okay. It's okay to get it wrong. So Yeah, and how do you handle that? Like if, you know, I always tell people not to fall in love with their work and the reason for that being is that uh, it's, or many reasons, but it's a mix of the the work that you're producing being a collaborative approach and it is ultimately to receive feedback and criticism to filter out and to test if it's uh the the level of communication that is appropriate for the brief um so yeah so how do you what's what's your thoughts on that yeah it's an interesting point actually because i think um you know there's there's two arguments to it i think there's there's one aspect which is you know people do fall in love with their work and they fight hard for it and that's how great things get done um, but also I think sometimes there's, there's a lack of awareness about, you know, how good the work really is and how much more or how much better it can be if you're collaborating with other people and listening and evolving. And, you know, in, in our business, we work a lot in design thinking. So a lot of what we're doing now is very much, you know, about iterative development of creativity. And that's not just, here's the answer and this is right. It is very much about um, getting it wrong, listening to what other people have to say, you know, bringing the client in on the process. So I think, you know, that ability to, um, there's a great quote that one of the guys I work with here uses, which is strong opinions lightly held. Mm. And I think that's a really nice way of looking at it is that you can't be so precious that you, you can't change your perspective. You've got to be able to take on board, develop, grow and enhance. And I think that's a really good way of looking at, at how you create really good work. Yeah. And, and there's something that you said there, uh, iter- iteration, right? Iter- iterative uh, working process and, and uh, work in progress rather. Um, that whole area is super important in terms of um, not leaving things to assumption, but really getting facts, data to the customer or the audience quickly. And then 
adapting and being agile and pivoting or whatever is necessary for, for, you know, version 2.0. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting point on data, I think, because, you know, there's always been that view that it has to be really robust, which it does. But I guess it's the kind of data as well, you know, what sort of information are you taking on board? And I think, you know, we're learning, I think, how to, how to find rich data or rich insights that, you know, really are compelling. You know, we do a lot of ethnographics or observation work where we're, you know, some of our guys will be hanging out in a bar or observing people in a supermarket or whatever it might be. And I think that sort of approach, you know, tends to give you, you know, the, the richer, deeper insights in terms of, you know, how people really do interact with, you know, products and things. Um, so I think, yeah, there's, you know, there's, I think the way we're working is changing quite dramatically mm. in recent years. And I think, you know, the, the output's a lot richer for, as a result. So let's chat about uh, your advice on becoming a great leader. I'm sure a lot of listeners would love to know more about this topic and, and, and certainly uh, I would as well. Uh, you've held leadership roles for over a decade uh, from marketing director to general manager to managing partner and now managing director at Landor Australia. What is the difference between a good leader and a great leader? Uh, if I had to pick a word, I'd probably say humility would be uh, the key word that comes to mind. I think um, you know, humility and a low self-orientation, mm. uh, people who are really into other people rather than being into themselves. And I think it's fascinating for me because similar to you in a sense, I guess, where you get to interview lots of interesting people, I think um, in my role, uh, quite often when we're rebranding an organisation, I'll meet the CEO of a lot of large organisations in Australia or overseas. And generally, I find the higher I go up the chain and the people I meet, the, the more humility I see, the less ego. And I think quite often the people I'm meeting at the top of the tree are people who have absolute strategic clarity, very confident people, but easy, really easy to work with. Um, and I think that's that's a really interesting insight. It's almost counterintuitive. You think that when you meet the CEO of a, a, you know some of the largest organisations in the country, they're going to be intimidating. But I find quite the opposite. I find that they're incredibly accommodating, easy to deal with, and it's probably the reason they've got to the point they have is that you know they're not. Um, it's it's not about them. It's about everybody else. And I think they've got to the point in their career where they understand that. Um, so yeah, it is quite counterintuitive, I think, in terms of what you'd expect. Yeah, I, I um, certainly can relate to that. Uh, in and a lot of the reasons uh, why I had uh, created this podcast is to bring that to light. That these people at the top who are experts on what they do are just as human as you and I, and uh, in fact, shockingly humble. Yeah. Um, shockingly in a good way in that they're at such a, a level of um, expertise and leadership um, and influence that um, they, they too um, have moments where they don't know the answer and that's okay. Um, and they're openly saying that and they are sharing their vulnerabilities, um, which, which is super important, I think, uh, in terms of being in the thick of, of a team and an organization, um, that they're very much leading from the front in a, in a way by doing that. Yeah. And also I think really, you know, really understanding their people and, 
understanding the strengths of their people and respecting their opinion. Uh, you know, to your point, they don't always know the answers. So I think in those cases, it is very much about bringing out the strengths in your team and, and really understanding what they can bring to the party. And I think that makes, that makes a huge difference because they're orchestrating a situation where they're, they're really bringing out the best in an organisation, not trying to do it all themselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you, you think of some of the large businesses in this country, you might be, you might have, uh, you know, 20,000 staff. There's no way you're going to do it all yourself. It's really about how you, you know, bring out the best of those around you, which sounds like a cliche, but it's, it's a lot harder to do than, um, than people might think. So when we talk about teams uh, a little bit deeper, I know some of the listeners are running small businesses themselves or working in large companies even, uh, and some are looking to one day lead uh, themselves. Are there any tips or considerations we should all keep in mind when leading and managing staff? I think one expression I've quite often heard, which I really like, is the idea of catching people doing something right rather than catching people doing something wrong. Mm. You know, there, there's this view that management is about um, telling people what to do, um, whereas I find, you know, there's, there's almost a, a different view, which is it's very much about building their confidence and, and catching them doing something right and seeing them flourish as people. Um, so I think, you know, again, that seems a bit counterintuitive, but I think it's, it's very much what I, I find works best for me. Um, I think I, I love looking at sporting analogies. I love looking at, you know, read books on what sporting coaches do. And, mm. you know, there's people like, um, you know, um, Sir Alex Ferguson who ran Manchester United or I love rugby union. So Michael Checker, who's the coach of the Wallabies now, or could be a rugby league coach like Wayne Bennett. But whenever the consistent thing I read about all of these people is that they're incredibly good at understanding individuals and what motivates that particular person and how to bring out the best in them. Um, and that seems to be a really consistent theme is, you know, it's not so much about someone who's standing up on the pedestal telling everyone what to do. It's, it's really getting inside the heads of those people in their team and really understanding them as individuals. So Dom, it's clear that there is no shortage of ideas in our world today. Uh, the challenges for people, especially designers and creatives, to figure out how to commercialize these ideas uh, from having over 20 years of experience in marketing, branding and communications uh, as you said, in Australia and Europe, where's a good place for listeners to start based on what's worked for your clients in the past? Uh, yeah, I think it's a really good point that there's no shortage of ideas. And I, I think um, it's something I hear all the time from clients is, you know, when they're dealing with creative agencies that, um, you know, they see lots and lots of ideas and lots of really good ideas. And I think, you know, sometimes we assume that our idea is the best, but um, in many cases, they, they see an enormous amount of stuff. And generally, what I get from them is, actually, I don't need any more ideas. I've got drawers full of ideas. I actually need to get this stuff to market. I need to commercialize ideas. Um, so it's, it's very true. And usually what I say, uh, say to people is I think probably the key to getting stuff to market is, and it sounds like, it sounds obvious, but it's persistence in terms of getting from A to B in terms of the hurdles. So if you're trying to get a product to market or an idea or a website or whatever it might be, um, generally what I find is that um, it's about actually 
persisting through each of the stages, you'll come up against a challenge and then it's actually working out and problem solving at that stage and then moving on to the next point in the chain. And um, I think we do that a lot with our innovations work that we do with North and South, which is our innovations arm. And it's it's very much about um, taking it from end to end. So, okay, we've got an initial idea, but now we've actually got to go through each of the steps. And there's a whole range of things you can do there at you know, when we're working with a large consumer goods company like a, a Nestle or whoever else it might be, we'll be um, bringing in the right stakeholders at the right point. So it might actually be, you know, talking to the people at the factory and understanding what they can and can't do with their plant and equipment so we can understand, that, you know, how we can change something to make it real. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's the old cliche of, you know, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, but um, it's amazing, you know, how a lot of our clients are really looking for that capability. Uh, it's can you take ideas and make them real? And we quite often talk about that as taking ideas and, and converting them into something tangible and something that, that can actually go to market. So um, so that that's really where most of our time goes, to be honest. I think, you know, the ideation piece is a lot of fun and we enjoy it, but really that's where the value comes in is is the ability to take it all the way through. Yeah, and I imagine certainly also uh, the reversal um, where an idea can come from uh, a new uh, found piece of knowledge in in the factory or in research or on, or a conversation um, on on something new. Yeah, that, that's possible. It's so true. Um, actually, there was something I, I can think about recently with our innovation guys were in the factory and it was for a food company and they said, "You realise we can put you know two flavours." in one with this particular product. <laughs> Mind-blowing. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, but it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, up until that point, you know, the, the assumption had always been that you could, you could only have one flavour. Mm. But it's just a conversation with a guy at a factory and suddenly you've got, you know, this, this um, you know, it's a, an incremental innovation in that case, but it's, it's something that new that you can do that, no one really, it was right there under the nose, but no one really saw it there. So I think there's a huge amount to be said for those kind of conversations and where they can reach you. Yeah, I like that. And and it is very subtle, but it is uh, like a like a, a tiny rock in, in an ocean where it creates those, uh, you know, the ripples turn into waves and you look at something like gesturing in terms of apps yeah. and how a swipe from left to right can now take you to a whole new window, you know, just a, a subtle thing like that. We were only used to, you know, the up and down of text messages when, you know, I even had before the uh, Nokia 3210s or whatever, I, I was using like a Siemens phone or something and it was, didn't even have, it was like bright green and black or I don't know, the, it was, it was uh, really uh, old school with an antenna. So, yeah. you know, we were intuitively used to the scrolling up and down, but now just the subtle left and right, and then even swiping from top to bottom yeah. um, on your phone really opens a whole new thing. Yeah. Well, even, you know, just, you know, insights that are there and then, you know, the latest version of the iPhone doing away with the the thumb swipe when you actually open it up and you're now just pressing on the, you know, the control button. So you know, there's evolution in those sort of things. Why do you need that additional step? Yeah, precisely. When you're thinking about utility, 
you know, I think it was there, you know, for a good reason to, you know, at the start. Now you can, you know, use your fingerprint as a way of coming into your phone rather than that extra layer. So um, it's amazing how um, it it's almost seems mundane in some cases, <laughs> yeah. I think, that the type of stuff that, you know, with really, you know, uh, granular insight, you can actually start to develop, you know, simplicity of utility and, that, and that's, that's innovation as well. Mm. So, you know, this, this whole, uh, I think there's pretty broad levels to it really. There's, you know, really groundbreaking stuff and, and really simple stuff at a low level that can actually accumulate into something much bigger. So uh, on innovation, you're soon to deliver a talk titled uh, What is Obstructing Innovation in Australia? Uh, can you share to us your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, it was actually um, a presentation I gave at Mumbrella about a year ago, I think, and then uh, it's a variation on that same theme. But a lot of what I was talking about there, I was talking about uh, Donald Horne's book, The Lucky Country, where he, he talked about the fact that, you know, Australia just digs stuff out of the ground and, and that's enough. And, you know, th- it was really a call to arms to say that we need to become a a much more innovative country. And when you actually look into it, in many ways we are. So, you know, we're working with um, CSIRO at the moment. Um, and, um, you know, as we all know, they invented Wi-Fi. Uh, they didn't see a lot of money for it. But, you know, um, the kind of stuff that is coming out of this country is quite amazing. We've got some of the best minds in the world. Um, you know, Cochlear and the um, the Bionic Ear and a whole range of other things. Uh, ResMed, which is um, you know, the flu vaccination. So, so there's so many things that we have done. Um, where we're bad is commercializing, which goes back to your point earlier. So I think, you know, we've, we've got the minds, we've got the ideas, we've got the capability to even take those ideas into something real, but we quite often can't translate it into dollars. What, what practical techniques do you think, Dom, would lead to commercially viable innovation success? Um, I think one of the one of the huge blocks I see is bureaucracy, um, and you know a lot of a lot of what's blocking innovation is really around culture, um, how a company operates. Uh, quite often, you know, companies put in place almost to manage risk, and that's almost there to shut down the possibility of an idea actually seeing the light of day. Um, and then, you know, as part of that talk, I actually looked into instances where there has been a piece of innovation, and usually it's a case of um, breaking out of uh, how the existing organization works. So I think Macquarie Bank quite often talk about innovation within the box. So, you know, give people an area in which they can do whatever they like. There's some constraints there, but allow them to run away and, and do some things differently that sit outside the traditional organization. And um, I think, you know, we've worked a bit with Penfolds over the years. And Max Schubert, the guy who invented Grange, um, was told by Penfold's management to stop making it. Um, and he said he just put a Chinese wall up on at McGill Estate at the winery and 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 kept making it and you know now sells for six hundred dollars a bottle. But there's lots and lots of examples like that. I think, you know, probably the most famous one is Steve Jobs when he wasn't getting on with John Scully at Apple. And um, you know, he went and created the um, the Macintosh campus and put a Jolly Roger flag up and he just broke away from the rest of the business really and went and did his own thing. Um, so there's, um, there's a whole series of those stories I could tell you um, which I've looked at over the years which fascinate me because they've realised that if they keep doing what they're doing in the existing business, the, the innovation's never going to happen. Um, so you really need to break out um, 
And I mean, you know, the, one of the famous ones is the Kodak moment where, you know, uh, digital overtook film and Kodak, you know, almost disappeared as a business. But the crazy thing about that was they invented the digital camera. Um, but, you know, they, they couldn't actually commercialize it because they were a film business, not a, not a hardware business. So, mm. you know, there's, there's lots of those examples and it's, it's frustrating to watch actually because I see it so often um, where there's a brilliant idea in an organization but the organization just can't, can't let it breathe. And so what would they do in that instance? I think it's really about breaking it away. And I, I, one thing I'm seeing with a lot of businesses now, big businesses, is they're, they're sort of thinking more like, you know, and it's, it's, again, it's one of these cliches at the moment, but they are, they are doing it and quite successfully is, um, you know, thinking like startups and, and actually setting up um, seeding money for smaller businesses because they realize that they, they can't do small. So they'll they'll invest in smaller businesses and give them all the help they can to the point that they reach scale and then they'll go and uh, bring them in. Um, mm. You've got to let it, you know, sit outside the business really is, is the key and that's the best way to see it succeed. Yeah, because it changes context as well when it does. Absolutely. I think, you know, Nespresso is another one. If that, if that had been inside the core Nestle business, it probably would have never succeeded. Um, was 20 years in the making so you know it was and it was they tried to shut it down a number of times but you know eventually found its moment for sure yeah so uh dominic when we begin to further interrogate and adopt artificial intelligence and smart machines what impact do you think they will have on branding um smart machines is an interesting one actually we we held a breakfast recently and we called it landor x and um the title was Man versus Robot. <laughs> Love it. And um, uh, we got um, Google, the BBC, Deloitte, and Coke along to talk about, you know, their view on what all this means. And we sort of started with this dystopian view that, um, you know, it was almost based on the whole idea of 2001 A Space Odyssey and where supercomputer how takes over the world. And, you know, there's been a lot of stuff where, you know, Stephen Hawkins has re- recently came out and said he's, he's worried about the future of humanity. And um, there was an Oxford University study that was saying that up to 50% of jobs in the US are at risk because of AI. So you take that, all of that into context and whether you believe it or not, I think there's, an, there's definitely an element of truth there in terms of some of the technologies that are coming through. It's, it's sort of a, almost a bigger problem than just branding or marketing. It's it's sort of a, a bigger business challenge that has implications for marketing because you're going to be marketing differently or you're going to be marketing completely different products. So, you know, Google, uh, when they were at this breakfast of ours, talked a lot about their Tango product, which is is really interesting around, you know, augmented reality and, um, you know, using AI as as a virtual sales assistant. So, you know, you could be standing in front of a car and or virtual car, I should say, but mm. as you move around the car, you can actually change the color and open the door and, um, you know, change exactly what's in front of you. So, you know, it's a better experience than if you were in a, um, looking at the real thing. Um, so, you know, there's those sort of things. And then, you know, big data is the obvious one in terms of, um, you know, bigger, sharper tools and the kind of customization that you can develop now. And, um, I think, you know, some of that stuff's pretty mind-blowing in terms of um, the kind of data that you can pull. Um, 
So there's things like Kenzo, which is, you know, a um, uh, takes something like 200 million pages of data and can actually work things out better than a financial analyst can. So, you know, if you've got that kind of intelligence or that kind of artificial intelligence being able to analyze data, imagine what it can mean in terms of your ability to make a marketing or branding decision. Um, so it's a pretty mind-blowing time, I think. Um, yeah, and just the, like the sheer uh, expansion of the pie um, uh, growing in terms of definitions of branding. You know, if we're looking at brands as personalities of organizations and companies, you know, the the customer on the other end can now just dive into whole other realms of experiencing them. It's exactly and and then you know what is what is the product or the service that you are marketing because you know you you take taxis and um you know with driverless cars singapore's 2 years away from launching its first driverless taxi so you know that that has huge implications in terms of how you're marketing that particular service or if you're you know one thing i've talked to uh, insurance companies about is you know, if there's driverless cars on the road, then you don't need car insurance because, you know, the, the or, or car insurance is affected because there's less accidents. So, mm. you know, they're the kind of things we're talking about on a regular basis in our, you know, dealing with our clients. So it's a very different conversation and, and it's not as, you know, it, it's not that far away. It's, it's sort of here already. And in many cases, we're past the tipping point. You know, if we were dealing with a media company, um, you know, I was thinking about, one thing I read recently is Fairfax, you know, over half of Fairfax's revenue now comes from uh, from non-traditional media. So, yeah, yeah, so fascinating times, I think, in terms of, you know, how we, how we think differently about how we work with our clients and the kind of creativity we're bringing to our clients as well because what would have worked 10 years ago doesn't work now in terms of how we work with our clients. Yeah, especially uh, from the... Uh, internal management, organization, and uh, distribution side of things. The the service uh, of the company uh, is changed equally. Um, not just the customer's experience. You know, when you look at training someone up, yeah, um, man, yeah, they could you could train someone up anywhere, anytime. Yeah, yeah, and also I think you know the way we used to look at customer experience. You know, we used to. If it was ten years ago, we'd we'd develop a customer journey, and it would be a linear journey. Mm. Um, and you know, now you overlay digital and experiential on top of that, and it's almost to use a really analog parallel. It's almost like a pinball machine where you know the user experience is bouncing all over the place. Um, so then, how do you how do you really make sense of that, and you know, help a client capture that experience? So. It, it sort of raises some really interesting issues. So Dom, that leads us quite nicely to this other area I wanted to chat to you about, which is around agility. Uh, how can brands be truly agile, do you think? You know, whether they're a small business or a large company, have you got any fundamental principles you think we should be aware of? Um, yeah, so Landall's done a lot of global research, uh, particularly with millennials around you know, what makes a brand um, adaptable and, and agile to circumstance. And um, in terms of principles, uh, the whole basis of what came out of the work we've done on this is uh, the brand needs to be leading, it needs to be cutting edge and ahead of the curve, but it also needs to stay true to its principles and where it came from. And I think that's quite often a mistake brands will make. They'll, 
feel like they need to, you know, pivot and be relevant to now and then sort of lose lose their DNA. Um, so it's really a balancing act. You've got to be, you know, a global brand that's multi-channel, that's highly adaptive, but then you've also got to be really responsible and open to uh, a dialogue with the consumer and also really principled about what you're doing as well. Um, so I think that's, that's a really interesting tension almost. It's almost like a paradox where, um, you know, you're trying to be cutting edge, but you're also trying to be conventional as well. Um, and, and getting that balance right. Um, so I think that's, that's what we're finding more and more is that, you know, there's that, that need to get that balance. Yeah, no, I think you've explained it really well. Um, so when let's, let's talk about, uh, the area of hiring someone, um, and, and qualities that you would look for when you do, um, have you got a story perhaps of a standout candidate you've hired in the past? Um, yeah, if, if I think back over time, I think um, I was talking about this recently, actually, and I was saying probably the, the thing I look for the most is intellectual curiosity, um, you know, people who really want to learn. And quite often that comes through in an interview where you know, it might be what they're reading, what they're thinking about, what side projects they've got going on. If I think back, uh, I remember hiring a really good strategist a few years back and um, you know, he'd written a novel and you know, he had all these other interests in other areas. And I thought, you know, he just brought something more to the conversation than simply just, you know, having a narrow view. Um, and I think, you know, that breadth of experience, um, what's interesting is I think if I go back a few years, it used to be, you know, someone who traveled a lot, worked in different places. I'm finding now more that I can have someone who's 20 who probably has that kind of knowledge because, They've learned everything online. <laughs> mm. So they may not have, but then suddenly every now and then there's this gap because they maybe haven't been and worked somewhere else or done something, but they do seem to know so much so young, um, which is incredible. Um, but that for me is really what I'm looking for is that sort of that spark, um, that intellectual curiosity and, and also just, um, you know, the humility piece we're talking about, about leaders. I think, you know, it's, it's also about a low self-orientation. I think what you're really looking for is people who are empathetic. You know, you don't want someone who's coming in and talking about just simply themselves and every, and how brilliant they are. You're really looking for someone who really understands what they can bring to a team. Um, so they're the kind of things, really. Yeah, Dom, I, I really uh, love how you've articulated that because, um, you know, a lot of the th- advice that I uh, give to uh, some of my students as well is uh, that you really have to create an emotional connection. And when you're telling stories uh, about, you know, your experiences and, and you're sharing your interests or even um, the the things you've learnt along the way, I- indirectly uh, related to ticking that comp- competency box, you know, the technical ability um, stuff, because really getting to an interview, they would have to some degree assessed your education, your, um, your technical ability and your work. And so I always remind people that when you go to the interview, it's, um, they, they want to know about you as a, as a person, uh, your culture, your upbringing, even, um, you know, what can you bring to the table? Because if everyone was the same, same, then, um, then, uh, it would, 
certainly reflect the the diversity of work and the uh, the breadth of of what uh, they can produce. Yeah, it's it's very true. I think you've got to bring something of yourself, um, which can be hard to do, particularly at the start of your career, because you know you were worried about saying the wrong thing or the right thing, or you know. But I think you know that you've got to show something of yourself, and I think that's that's what makes you unique, and that's that's what people going to buy is the individual and what they bring, because there's probably a couple of other people that have very similar qualifications. Mm. Um, so yeah, it is, it is very much about revealing something of yourself. So a few more questions for you, Dominic, a, uh, a question I ask, uh, all of my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Dominic Walsh, perhaps the Dominic finishing high school, what would you tell him? Probably, uh, I don't know if you get this answer from other people, but I'd definitely say, uh, don't be so hard on yourself. I think um, you know, it, it's okay to make mistakes and, um, you know, you, you've got to learn and, and be resilient and persist and, and that's really how you succeed. So, um, so I think that that's an important one from my perspective. For sure. Yeah. I like that one. Um, now if, uh, you think back on, you know, your, your mentors or the people that have helped guide you along the way, who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? You know, maybe there was a person or, or a few people that inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential. For me, I, I always look and, you know, it's not the person I work, you know, just inspiring thinkers. And is that what, is that what you mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, some of the obvious ones for me, particularly early in the piece, it was, um, right at the start of my career, uh, Richard Branson, I mean, um, I'm, a lot of people are inspired by him, but I used to read a lot of books about him and, and was just fascinated by the thought that he could just go and do things that no one else thought were possible. You know, you start, you start with a mail order music business then you become, you know, recording business and then suddenly you're in airlines and that fascinated me. And I think, you know, there's a huge amount of creativity and, and guts and what he did and then um this one's going back a while but even anita roddick who started the body shop and you know the idea that she was sort of almost um somebody believed in philanthropy and business and how that all comes together and you know the the new age ones are sort of you know um a steve jobs or an elon musk or someone like that um and even the dalai lama i think yeah <laughs> just to throw in something completely different i think it's but there's no one for me i think all of these people are people I've read a lot about them and it's sort of a combination of all of, you know, probably every one of those individuals I've read all their biographies and I use a lot of that stuff as reference on a, on a regular basis. Yeah, they're great. And, and there's something about reading uh, the stories of these types of people or, or you know, experiencing uh, their teachings in some shape or form where they almost breathe truths into you that you may not have believed before you encountered their story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you don't always like them, you know, like Steve Jobs. I think when I went, um, when I, I read um, the Isaacson biography on Jobs, I was really disappointed. I wanted to like him, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, fascinating in terms of his just absolute, you know, core belief in what he was doing and sort of uncompromising ability to see it through. So you know, some, there's things you take, um, but not necessarily everything you agree with. Yeah, totally. Um, so, uh, what's next for you, Dom, and everything you're involved in this year and beyond? Um, 
I think, you know, in our business, it's always about reinvention. So, uh, you know, two years ago, we decided that uh, we wanted to acquire a, a design thinking innovation business, a bit like an IDEO. And we, we went and acquired North and South, which has been fabulous in terms of bringing in new thinking into our business. And, uh, you know, there's an element of what's next. Uh, so we've done that, but what, what's our next thing? We've got a whole lot of thoughts around what that could be and what other capabilities we can bring into our business. But I think, you know, just to our point that we've been talking about, about agility and what's going on with our clients, we've almost got to turn that thinking on ourselves and continually be reinventing, which makes it really interesting uh, in terms of what we can do next. Great. And uh, mate, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Um, I think as boring as it might sound, LinkedIn is is one of my favorite platforms. So I'm always putting stuff up on that and uh, it's a great way to, to keep in touch. And then there's a lot of land or stuff that we put up locally as well. So there's the Level 11 blog, which is um, a place that we put up a whole lot of interesting stuff that we're doing great. in this office. Because obviously in our network, there's there's 27 offices, but that's our place where we can share something a bit about what we're doing in, in the Sydney and Melbourne offices. Fantastic. I'll uh, put links for the listeners on this blog post uh, for this podcast. And uh, mate, thank you so much for your time and uh, being generous and sharing your story with us. Uh, and uh, it's been such a pleasure having you on. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I can't wait to see what uh, Landor produces next. Right. Thanks, Ryan. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you all for tuning in, wonderful giants. I really appreciate your time listening to Dominic share his story and insights. A little teaser for you with our next guest. She is the executive director of AIGA, the American Professional Association for Design. She is known for her passion and ability to bring big ideas to big audiences through her hybrid capabilities as an experienced designer, educator, and practicing innovator. So stay tuned for that one. Before you race off, I do encourage you to check out freshbooks.com slash giant, especially if you're running a business or freelancing. You know, it wasn't too long ago that working for yourself was looked down upon. There was almost a stigma that one couldn't get a real job, but that's no longer true. Today, one in three Americans are self-employed, the trend is growing, and by 2020, this group could grow to be over 40% of the US workforce. Millennials are 54 million strong, the largest generational slice of the workforce, and millennials are more inclined towards self-employment. Perhaps they, or we should I say, grasp the potential in this always connected world. So check out freshbooks.com slash giant if you're after a cloud-based accounting solution to your business and you'll get 30 days of unrestricted use via that link. Thank you once again for your support. If you found this episode useful, I'd be honored if you leave an iTunes review. Please head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review and it'll take you right there. Your review doesn't have to be long and it's a little thing that will go a long way. Let me know once you have. I'd love to thank you personally. So that's a wrap. And from the words of Dominic himself, who reminds us that it's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Let's take those ideas all the way through and make them real. Take care and I'll catch you on the next episode. 